Mark chapter 2 verse 1 to 12 teaches us, I think, three main things. It teaches us about our deepest problem. It teaches us about Jesus and forgiveness. And it teaches us also about Jesus and holistic healing. The um, first thing that it teaches us is it teaches us about our deepest problem. You notice uh, I read before there that Jesus comes back to Capernaum. And it appears that Jesus has actually come back to the disciple Peter's house, uh, which was right on the shores of Capernaum. There's a uh, peer-reviewed archaeology organisation called the Biblical Archaeology Review. It's mostly uh, people who are uh, of a Jewish faith, but uh, it's very much a, a robust academic journal regarding the latest discoveries that have something to do with biblical truth. And uh, in, they've got a document there which they call the, uh, the top 10 archaeological discoveries that have been made that actually uh, give us information about the Bible. Now, these guys, if I can just be really clear about it, these guys are not cowboys. Um, there's lots of people running out there saying lots of different things about things that they've found. Uh, and it all sounds really fantastic. And there's stories on the net that are just made up about things that people have found. And what you want to look for is you really want to look for this evidence. You want to see if it's been peer-reviewed by other archaeologists and people who know. Uh, Some of the people in the Biblical Archaeology Review, I think, don't even have any kind of faith at all. Um, uh, But they're just experts in the field and they peer-review things. So it's particularly fascinating that one of the things that actually makes the top ten list, in a sense, for the BAR is uh, the finding of uh, Peter, the the disciple's house, Uh, I've mentioned this uh, once before in the project, but if you have a look up on the screen there, what you can actually see is uh, this is the town of Capernaum, uh, which is where um, Mark says this healing actually took place. And the interesting thing is this site here at the front of Capernaum is is the Capernaum Synagogue. Now, if you think back uh, a week or two ago, I talked about Jesus being teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. So this is literally the place where Jesus would have been standing, teaching in the synagogue. This is also literally the place where the unclean spirit cried out. Now at the end of this uh, synagogue here up here is you've got a whole bunch of houses that are run down and up the end there is an octagonal church. Now typically what actually happened is uh, back in the day is that they would build churches on top of sacred sites. And so as far as they can tell from all the evidence that they've got, and I can send you the PDF of it, just email me or message me on the city, but you can read the whole PDF about why the archaeologists actually think that this octagonal church is actually built right on top of Peter the disciple's house. Interestingly enough, when they excavate it, and this doesn't, they can't prove anything by this, but it's just an interesting discovery. They found a fish hook in there. So uh, that, that was really interesting. And you may not quite be able to see it, but just up there is uh, where the Sea of Galilee actually starts. So what we've actually got is we've actually found the site where, uh, where Jesus, it appears. Now the BAR are not going to say this is definitely Peter's house. They say with a really high likelihood this is probably Peter's house. And that's probably a good guideline for you. If you read stuff about archaeology and someone says definitively there's something that they found that was built 3,000 years ago is definitely something... Uh, you probably want to be a little bit nervous. But if they say, look, here's the evidence, and we think this is probably it, but we can't be 100% sure, uh, you can, I think you can probably have a bit more confidence in that. So what does Jesus do? He's been away for a while. He's come back to uh, Capernaum. He's come back to Peter's house. 
Peter's house was the house in which he, uh, he stayed. Um, interesting thing is, if we just go back to the scripture here, he's not doing healing in this house. You see, what he's doing is he's preaching. He's preaching the word. So you remember from last week, uh, when I spoke last week, that people flocked to Jesus to get their needs met and he kind of disappeared. He got kind of celebrity status and then he kind of disappeared because he's not mainly interested in meeting people's needs. He's mainly interested in people interacting with him. And so here he is in Peter's house. The house is crammed full. There's no more room there. It's packed and he's preaching. He's not healing. He's not casting out demons. He's preaching the word. And some guys come with a paralytic. Now, we don't know anything about this paralytic. How long was he paralyzed for? What happened to him? What, was, it, was it something that happened in his childhood? Was he born lame? All we know is that he can't walk. And the guys come with this guy to Jesus and they can't get in the house with him. And so what they decide is they decide they're actually going to go up onto the roof. So Palestinian houses in the day, uh, let me tell you a little bit about them. Uh, They were usually a small one-room structure with a flat roof. Access to the roof was by means of an outside stairway. The roof itself was made of wooden beams with thatch and compacted earth in order to shed the rain. Sometimes tiles were laid between the beams and the thatch and the earth was placed over them. So you can imagine what's happened. These boys have come to the place. They've got the paralytic. They can't get in. They want to get to Jesus with their friend to get some help for their friend. So what do they do? The four of them kind of walk up this stairway on the outside carrying their friend on a stretcher. One of them's got some kind of implement, obviously, and he starts hacking through the roof. So you can imagine the commotion that that probably actually starts to... um, starts to create you know I mean there's everyone else is inside the house and one of them thinks that is a really big bird up there all right and it's just like and then all of a sudden dirt starts to drop from the ceiling you got tiles falling down and Jesus is there I mean we've got nothing that he says I mean if it was me I'd just be going can you guys just knock it off right I'm trying to preach here all right but that's the kind of thing that's actually happening in uh, in this house um, it's, it's quite a quite a thing and one of the things, I've been reading a, a sensational book by uh, a guy called Paul Miller, and I can't even tell you what the name of the book is, but it's really because I've forgotten, but it's, it's an amazing book. One of the things he highlights is actually Jesus' ability to zoom in on the individual. You see these stories where there's so many people coming to Jesus. There's people everywhere, and everyone want to, wants a piece of him, but somehow it's as if in the moment where Jesus starts to deal with an individual, it's like one of those camera shots where everything just zooms in, it just kind of goes, and you just, it's like all of a sudden it looks like it's just Jesus and this guy. Let me read you this uh, quote from Paul Miller on Jesus and people. He says, when Jesus interacts with people, he narrows his focus down to one person. When he encounters a lame man by the pool of Bethesda, he first sees a multitude, then he sees just him. In the midst of a multitude of invalids, blind, lame and paralysed, Jesus saw him lying there. When Jesus is with someone, that person is the only person in the room. Isn't that precious? Isn't that... I mean, I think that's one of humanity's great fears is that we just get lost. I mean, the striving that humanity has for individuality, to be noticed, to be someone of significance. It's been a, a thing in my heart. I just... All the time, uh, well, maybe not all the time, but a lot of the time in my upbringing, I'd, I would think about heaven and I'd think that there'd be 
millions and millions of people worshipping Jesus and I'd be lost in the crowd. But it never works like that with Jesus. You never get lost in the crowd. Jesus slows down and concentrates on one person at a time. Isn't that precious? You think about how many people he has to deal with and he's able to slow down and focus on one person at a time. The way he loves people is identical to the way he prays to his Father. This one person focus is how love works. Love incarnates by slowing down and focusing on just the beloved. And then Miller makes this comment, we don't love in general, we love one person at a time. So I want to ask you at this point in time, what do you think is your greatest need? You see, the four guys bringing this paralytic to Jesus, they've got a sense of what this guy's greatest need is, don't they? He's just got to get healed. It's not like we've got to get this guy to the front door so he can hear Jesus preaching because his greatest need is to hear the preaching of Jesus. They're going, we've got to get him to Jesus because his greatest need is to be healed of his uh, paralysis. Now, some of you, when I ask you, what do you think your greatest need is? If you've been in the church long enough, you're pretty well schooled at giving the theological answer. I need Jesus, some of you might say. Or I need, my, I need my sins forgiven. But what do you actually ruminate on? In the quiet times for you, what do you actually think will help you? What do you actually think if you could just get a resolution to that, you'd be okay? What do you think and strategize about What would be the one thing that would sort out your life? There's this classic question that I was taught in my counselling training and they call it the miracle question. And the miracle question goes like this. Imagine you went to bed tonight and while you're asleep, the thing that you most desperately wanted actually took place. And by the time you wake up, it had happened. What would that be? What's, What's your miracle question? You see, our need tends to be shaped and associated with our pain. What tends to give us the most pain is likely to shape our greatest need. But pain can be deceptive. Has anyone ever noticed that? Pain can be very deceptive. We can be unaware of the things that we really need. And so what we find in this story of Jesus is we find Jesus saying something incredibly stunning. He says this, When Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I I would have loved to have been there. And the thing I would have loved the most, I think, is the look on the friends' faces. It's like, (laughs) and? (laughs) Is Is that it? You don't get it, Jesus. You don't get it. We actually brought him to you to get him healed. What did the man say? I mean, it's it's not recorded. What did he say? Just going, ah, here we go. Here's another one. I went to the guy up the road the other day and he prayed for me and nothing happened. And now I come to Jesus and he just forgives my sins. I'm not after that at all. What would you say if you were the paralytic? And you were lying there. What if, what if he'd been paralysed for 40 years? What if he'd never, ever known the sensation of walking? What if you'd never known the sensation of walking? 
Maybe it was half a century. We don't even know how old he is. Maybe he's 60. Maybe he's been paralytic for 50 years. Maybe he's had other people helping him go to the toilet all the time and just doing basic things. What if that was you? What if you were lying there? What do you think your greatest need would be at that point? Well, Jesus is jarring because he always deals with our greatest need. And I just want to... I want you to see today from Mark 2 that you have a bigger problem than your felt needs. This boy had a bigger problem than not being able to walk. For those who were here when I showed the uh, Ebola clip about Sierra Leone, those people have a bigger problem than lying there dying from Ebola. And that problem is sin. You see, the main problem in our life, the main problem in your life and in my life, the main problem in our lives is never ever suffering. That's never the main problem. The main problem is always sin. And what you realise is that the Bible actually teaches really, really clearly that all suffering is rooted in man's separation from God. That's where it all came from in the first place. And so let me ask you this morning, do you see your sin as your greatest problem? You see, your main problem is not what has happened to you or what people have done to you but the way you've responded to that. Your main problem is you. Someone said to me yesterday, um, I was talking to them and they said, so do you think that narcissism's uh, a real problem for people in today's culture? And I said, my answer is this. I said, in the first place, Adam and Eve started self-worship and I don't think we've improved on it too much. We haven't refined it. We've got the same issue of self-worship. You see... In a sense, what Jesus is saying and the way that he says this to the paralytic is he, in a strange kind of way, Jesus is actually empowering the paralytic. If he said what Richard Dawkins says, that all things are just biology and DNA in people's system, what influence does he have over that? Well, not really any. If Jesus said to the paralytic, um, that his main problem is what others have done to him. What could he do about that? Not really anything. If Jesus said to him, look, your main problem is what has happened to you. What could he do about that? Well, you can't really do that much about it. But you know what? When Jesus says your main problem is your own personal sin, your own personal decision to walk away from God and to ignore God and to sin against him, he can actually do something about it. It's kind of a strange empowerment that Jesus is getting getting around with with this uh, paralytic you see the man was probably thinking that if he could just walk he'd be okay life would be good but who knows that that doesn't last who knows that he might have just been healed of his paralysis in three months time life would be as crap as it always was because other things tend to come in and we realize that those things don't actually last And I challenge you today, if you're sitting there today and you think that getting that thing that you need is going to save you, that it won't. You see, all of us have a a picture in our minds about the way our life ought to play out. We have this thing inside of us, especially in times of acute suffering and pain, where we just go, just save me from this living hell. If I could just have this, I'd be okay, I'd be saved. When you daydream about leaving this life, what does your functional heaven look like? 
What does your life look like if everything was right? Because part of it is that it's very frustrating for us sometimes because God gets up to things that we don't necessarily think are urgent and they're not that important. I mean, I wonder how much of your life you think God has been barking up the wrong tree. It's like, why are you changing that? Why are you messing with that? You know, and part of that is because what Jesus and what God gets up to in our lives doesn't always have that much to do with our happiness. And it just doesn't sit quite right with us. We just kind of go, what are you doing that for? And, and he's off there and he's kind of banging around and tinkering around in something. You just go, well, I don't really want you to do that. This thing over here, this is what I really want you to do. This would make me happy. This would make me okay. Just give me a good night's sleep and I'll be okay. Just heal me. Just make me walk again. Just make me happy again. Just make my career work. Jesus, just change my situation. Just stop me from being bored. Give me something good to do. Take me to a sunny place, a wintry place, a happy place, a non-bored place. If I just had more money place. But it never lasts, does it? And what happens is when we want those things, they actually become our functional saviors. We actually start to believe that if we could just have that, I'd be saved. If I'm just successful there, if I just had enough money, if I just had the respect of my family, if only. You see, it makes sense that the things that cause the greatest existential pain dominate our thinking. Why is it so critical? And I think a large part of the reason why it's so critical, and this came out in uh, Recalibrate, is one of the things that we want is we just want relief. And it's almost like that becomes the thing that we want the most. And so what we do is we turn things into saviours. The things that can fix our life, they become our masters. But you know what? Jesus is a better saviour than any other saviour you can find. Because he frees people. You know, if you turn something into your saviour, you know what's going to happen? You're going to become a slave to it. You will choose it, but it won't be long before it will be choosing you. He fulfills you. Other saviours will not fulfill you. The scriptures say that in the Old Testament, I think it is, in one of the prophets, God says, I am the only saviour. There is no other saviour outside of me. But boy, do we actually try to generate our own saviours. Have you ever noticed if you make something else into your saviour and you fail it, it doesn't forgive you? Well, Jesus does. He always forgives you. You see, part of the struggle for us is that we have a spiritual pain threshold. And I think this is a massive problem. Because if I asked you, and I'm sure most of you would answer yes, if I asked you, do you actually want to be healed? Most of you would probably say yes. But I guarantee you, probably most of you, and I'm not saying this to be offensive, but probably most of you would give up before Jesus was finished. Because what happens with us is we've got these things in our life that create pain and God starts to deal with those and eventually what happens is the, the pain gets below our pain, our spiritual pain threshold and we stop. And I've talked with some of you who have done that. You do it and you don't go 
the full tilt in terms of the healing that God wants to bring in your life because you get to the point where you go, oh, I got this now, I can handle this now, this is okay, I can live with this pain. You see, I'm convinced that a lot of times we come to God and we say, I just want you to give me a little bit of help so I can save myself. I wonder, is this going on in the heart of the paralytic? If I can just get some healing, I think I'd be okay. I think I'd be resourceful enough. I remember counselling a lady some time ago who had a bunch of tragic things happen in her life. And it was very, very difficult. But you know what? That lady was incredibly resourceful. And I was actually really, really confident. And I said to people after it, I said, I think that lady's going to be fine, in inverted commas. Is she resourceful enough to handle everything for the rest of her life? Probably. But will she get to the place where God actually wants her to be? I wasn't confident. Now, it's not ultimately dependent upon me. It's dependent upon God. And he may work in her. But I want to encourage you this morning, people, don't be resourceful. Jesus actually isn't interested in people being resourceful so that they don't need him, so they don't connect with him. You see, I think our deepest wish is not the problem. It's not wrong for the paralytic to want to be healed, but it is wrong if the paralytic wants to be healed and he thinks that's going to save him. And almost always, when we go to Jesus with a need and we say, this is my deepest problem, you know what he says? We're going to have to go deeper than that. We're going to have to go deeper than that. And you might get down below your spiritual pain threshold and you know what Jesus is saying to you? Peter, we've got to go deeper. We've got to go deeper. We've got to go a bit deeper. And you can put your name in there and he's, I guarantee you, saying to you today, saying we've got to go deeper. He's saying, I'm not just going to give you physical healing. I mean, it would, be, it would actually not be loving if Jesus healed the paralytic and didn't deal with his deepest need. Is that not true? A writer called Cynthia Heimel makes these uh, couple of piercing comments about celebrities and people's desire to get their greatest need. She says this, I pity celebrities. No, I do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed. The morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing that they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make every day everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened and nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. And she makes this piercing comment. She says, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants your deepest wish. You know, Romans chapter 1 says exactly that. It says God handed them over to their desires. And you know, you might think, you might have a whole bunch of different caricatures of who God is. But I'm telling you, the moment that he gives you what you want, your deepest wish, and he doesn't take you deeper, 
that there's a sense of judgment about that that doesn't exist at other times. And that's what Romans chapter 1 says. It says the wrath of God is being poured out on mankind and then it goes on to say he's handed them over to what they want. So your great hope is not for you to get your deepest wish in a sense but for God to make your wish deeper, to take it deeper. And Jesus is really saying to the paralysed man, he's going, I'm not going to play a rotten joke on you and, only, and heal your physical needs and not deal with your spiritual. I'm not going to play a rotten joke on you and give you what you want without fixing the, the real issue. He's not going to deal with the lesser problem and leave the greater one. A theologian called Schweizer said this, it is not as if the sick man were unusually sinful but his case makes the universal separation of man from God more conspicuous and illustrates the truth which is proclaimed over and over in the Old Testament, that all suffering is rooted in man's separation from God. For this reason, Jesus must call attention here to man's deepest need. Otherwise, the testimony of this healing would remain nothing more than the story of a remarkable miracle. You see, we have a big problem. Sin is not just a big problem in that it mars and confuses and messes up morality. Sin messes up everything. The turning against God messed everything up. And it's not just about behaviour. Matthew chapter 15 is clear that sin comes out of the heart. And so we've got a deep, deep heart problem. In 2007, a bridge straddling the uh, Mississippi River suddenly collapsed. 13 people died and 145 people were injured. And I think the thing, some of you might remember when this actually happened. I mean, there was, there was nothing that kind of indicated that it was going to happen. It literally just dropped into the water. Um, and I think a large part of the shock of it is how unannounced it was, that it just kind of happened without any kind of warning. Well, John Piper's church, Bethlehem Baptist Church, was, uh, that's where they are. They're in uh, Minneapolis. And uh, they put together this uh, short little video which I wanted to show you where he talks about evil and suffering in the context of the, um, the bridge collapse. And all the uh, visuals that you'll see there are, uh, is video footage of the emergency services dealing with the situation as it unfolded. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of Him, this is God, Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What we are experiencing in the world are birth pains, Paul says. A new age is to be born, and the heaving of the natural order in this world is a testimony to the disorder of the moral world, namely, my sin. Adam's sin, your sin. And here's the reason for it. Who in this world gives a hoot about sin? 
Who in this world sheds tears because of the repugnance and the horror and the dishonor done to God because of their sin? Nobody. How is God to speak when we are so morally dead, so spiritually blind, that the ultimately moral ugliness of the world phases us not one bit? He does it with the world. This they can feel. Pain they can feel. So I will subject the whole creation to futility until they get the message. Sin is horrible. Diseases and deformities are God's portraits of what sin is like in the spiritual realm. And that's true even if the most godly people bear those deformities. Calamities are God's previews of what sin deserves and will one day receive a judgment a thousand times worse than New Orleans or 9-11. Famines, pestilence, persecution, these happen so that the world will see that the followers of Jesus count Christ more precious than everything in the world. And discover that he can be that for them. Because one day, they're going to lose everything. Everybody loses everything on earth somewhere. I think one of the things that I find most powerful about what John Piper says there is um, the connection he makes between the, the physical reality of suffering and pain and the disorder in the uh, spiritual or the moral kind of realm. It, it is something that's been in the back of my mind for quite a few years now. You know, so when you look at a clip and you see people in Sierra Leone, like we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and they're lying there alone, dying, I think part of the thing that God wants you to get a sense of is clearly the physical suffering, but I think God wants you to get a sense of the fact that that's a horror to watch that. Yet I don't even get close to having that kind of horror or repugnance, sensing that repugnance of sin in the same kind of way. Do you get what I'm saying? And there's a sense in which God would say, look at sickness, look at someone dying of cancer and see the repugnance of the evil that humanity's brought upon themselves by forsaking God and being their own gods and worshipping themselves. And it's interesting when you go through the scriptures, there seems to be this connection that's going on between sin and sickness. Now the Bible doesn't say that every sickness is the result of a specific sin. But it does say that every sickness is the result of sin in general. If humanity didn't turn away from God, if humanity stayed faithful to God, people would not be dying of cancer right now. People would not be lying on their own in Sierra Leone, dying of Ebola. That wouldn't be happening. We as humanity, I speak as humanity, we have brought suffering and sickness upon ourselves. We'll get to a little bit more of this later on, but it's really fascinating in the back end of James, in James chapter 5, where it talks about healing and calling the elders of the church to come and anoint people with oil and pray for their healing. 
What's one of the things that the person needs to do in the midst of that? Confess sin in the middle of it. And it's not saying that there's the physical affliction is directly the result of a particular sin, although there are examples of that where it is the result of a particular sin. But sin's kind of all, always associated with suffering. It always shares a connection there. So Jesus deals with our deepest problem. Number two, Jesus and forgiveness. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes were sitting there. So the scribes were people schooled in the written law of God and schooled in its oral interpretation. It was a closed order of legal specialists for, um, for religion. Um, and they were kind of only allowed into that by laying on of hands. Uh, they've probably, these guys are probably not local people who just happen to be there. They're probably spying Jesus out, trying to work out what he's up to. Um, and the really interesting thing is only once in Mark's whole gospel are they mentioned in a favourable light. So these guys are up to no good most of the time. And what does Jesus actually ask? Well, they ask, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus perceives that they're thinking this in their hearts and he asks them this question, which is easier, to heal a paralysed man or to forgive sins? Now, theologians have debated the answer to this question for years. What would you answer? Do you think it's easier to heal someone physically or forgive their sins? interesting question the difficulty in terms of Jesus is he can only offer forgiveness if he moves to the cross I mean if I had to throw my lot in I'd go forgiveness that's way harder than healing someone and the interesting thing about forgiveness is this is the big beef that the scribes have got there right they don't think he's God and he's offering forgiveness on behalf of God this would be like two of my boys snotting each other. One of them snots the other one in the nose and then a third boy is not even part of it, comes in and says, I forgive you, buddy, for doing that. Now your instant response is, you can't do that. You're not allowed to do that because you you're not the one who's been offended. The person who's offended is the one who has the opportunity to forgive sins. There's a really interesting scripture in Romans chapter 3, verse 23 to 25. It talks about sin says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Propitiation just means a removal of wrath. Uh, the removal of wrath by his blood, by dying on the cross, to be, to be received by faith or trust in God. If you're not a Christian here today, you can actually, the good news is, the gospel is that you can have the wrath, the anger of God because you turned against him. Jesus will remove that for you. But you have to trust him to do that. It doesn't happen automatically. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. That last sentence is a particularly instructive sentence. You know why? Because if God doesn't deal with the moral evil that humanity has created and glosses over it and be nice to humanity, you know what? He's a bad judge. He's not a just judge. We've got a guy in the Old Testament 
that commits adultery with a woman. He's the king of the nation. He's God's chosen king. He commits adultery, get the husband drunk a bunch of times and then gets him killed because he got his wife pregnant. It's not right. You would not be a good judge. You would not be a just judge if you just left that. And what Paul's saying here is, look, God's been really, really super kind to people and he can't just keep doing it and not actually sort out the moral evil. And if you're not a Christian here today, you just need to know this. He will sort out the moral evil. He will. And either you will pay for your sins, you will pay for the things that you've done wrong, or Jesus will. Now, he invites you to accept him by faith and to trust in his death as a thing that pays for your evil. But you're not forced to do that. You just need to know that sin needs to be paid for. I've not found anyone who thinks that rapists should get away with what they do and shouldn't be punished. We can all be pretty good in terms of the small details of our own life and say, oh, that wasn't that bad, it was only a white lie. And maybe we could debate some of those things. But as a general rule, people don't think that it's right for someone who violates someone else to get away with it. Would you agree with me? And the good news is that God won't let anyone get away with anything. Do you hear that as good news? Because that's part of the gospel. That's part of the good news of the gospel. You won't get away with anything unless you give all of your filth and your sin and your junk to Jesus. And then, you know what? You get away with everything. Not because you want to, but you just get away with everything. You you guys got to smile more. That's, That's good news, isn't it? He has a record of every single thing that you've done wrong that you don't even think you did wrong. He's got a record of it. And he's actually paid for that on the cross. I mean, one of the things I think is going to be stunning is you'll probably get there, Jesus will come back one day, we'll see everything far more clearly than what we do now, and you'll go, geez, I didn't even know that was a problem, you know? And that was part of the death that Jesus died and the offer, the sacrifice that he actually gave for you. You see, Jesus can't say to the paralytic, I forgive you, son, unless it gets squared up somewhere. We read some more Paul Miller on Jesus in Mark chapter 1. Word of the healing and the exorcism raced through the seaside city of Capernaum. But the tradition of the elders doesn't permit healing on the Sabbath unless it is life-threatening, so the town waits until evening. Mark tells us that as soon as the sun went down, the whole city was gathered together at the door. It is easy to imagine the street in front of his house, illuminated by the soft glow of hundreds of flickering oil lamps. Jesus heals far into the night. That's why he came. Listen to this. There aren't supposed to be mute children. There aren't supposed to be abandoned wives. There aren't supposed to be thoughtless bosses. It's a remarkable day. The evening and morning of the first day of a new creation. The new Adam rolls back the curse and cuts through evil. Demons and sickness flee the presence of life. And Miller makes the comment, Aslan is on the move. here's where I want to finish is Jesus and holistic healing 
So whilst the scribes, the church guys are saying, you can't do this, you can't forgive that boy, Jesus says, just to prove to you that I can do that, I'm now going to make him walk. And he commands him, he says, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he gets up and he goes home. Now, I think that's amazing. Let me tell you why I think that's amazing. Because quite a few years ago, I broke my ankle. And uh, I had to get a, uh, have an operation, get a plate put in it. I had to be on crutches for six weeks. Now, I hated the crutches. And I had, anyone who's ever been on crutches, you know, kind of messes with your nerves under your arms sometimes. And so I had one and a half fingers that went numb in the end of them. And I just couldn't wait to get off them. So the day they said, you can just not use the crutches anymore, I was determined I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to uh, use them at all. They said, you might feel more comfortable if you use them a little bit and just ease on to walking. I'm just going, no, nah, I'm going cold turkey into this thing, right? Now, anyone who's ever done that, you just know that sensation of standing on your foot for the first time and expecting it to be strong and it not being strong is just, I mean, you almost break your ankle the first step that you take. It's probably not quite that bad, but it's a bit like that. Because it's just so weak. You've just had all this muscle wastage that's actually happened over a six-week period. And the amount of pain that I had in my ankle, just muscular pain from my muscles just trying to get up to speed with walking. I didn't go back to my crutches, but man, it wasn't pretty (laughs) for a little while until the muscles sort themselves out. Well, this guy would have had a lot of muscle wastage, right? Depends how long. I mean, imagine it. He's, maybe it's 40 years. Maybe he hasn't walked at all. Maybe he's never, ever had the muscles to walk. But you know what Jesus does? Jesus has commanded him, fixes everything. And he can get up and he walks out. Not only that, but he's load-bearing, all right? Picks up the mat that he came in on and walks out with it, all right? And everyone's just going, what the, what's going on here? Like one minute he's forgiving sins, the next minute this guy hasn't walked since we've known him, is walking around carrying his bed. That is weird. But you know what? This is symptomatic of the rule of God's kingdom. Jesus brings wholeness. And he doesn't just bring spiritual wholeness. He brings physical wholeness. You see, the determination of the men that were carrying their friend, you know what that said? That said, we think Jesus can help. We just think he can help. They're really determined. They get to the house. They can't get in. They dig through the roof. And Jesus says to them, look, I've noticed your faith. I've noticed your active trust in me. I'm going to bring healing. You see, healing is a gracious moment of God where he steps into the withering and decay which are tokens of death at work in us. And when God comes into the world in Jesus, that's what you actually see is he's actually coming in and he's starting to push the decay and the withering nature of evil and moral evil. He's pushing it back. You see, it wasn't God's will that mankind should live with the pressure of death upon us. That wasn't his will. Sickness, disease and death are the fruit of the sinful condition of us, of mankind. But yet we find this bind, don't we? That Jesus doesn't heal everyone. And I think that reminds us of the fact that we live in the now and the not yet. There is a sense, this is a term that theologians use, we live in a sense 
in a time now where, in a sense, by the cross, you're perfectly holy. And God's made you perfectly righteous, but there's, there's a not yet component to it where you just go, well, there's still a fair bit of mopping up that's going on. And I think that translates across into the physical realm also. Is God, is Aslan in Jesus, is he on the move? And is he bringing release? Is he bringing healing to people? Yes, he is. Is it a complete healing? No, it's not a complete healing yet. And we know from the scriptures that there are some reasons why God doesn't perform healing. Because there are times that he has some redemptive reasons for why he doesn't do things. And we need to trust him in that. And some of you may come from a different theological persuasion to that, and that's okay. But we don't at the project here believe that the death on the cross by Christ means that everyone's completely healed from everything. Because, you know what, everyone who believes that is going to die. There's a sense in which the curse has been broken, but it lingers. Now, the curse of sin, the consequences of sin, are dealt with by Jesus on the cross. But there's a sense in which it's not quite in its fullness yet. I, uh, I read a commentator last week when I was preparing for last week's message. The commentator made this comment, which I thought, that's what commentators do, they make comments. But he, he made this comment. He said, it's sometimes easier to believe in God's power than to believe in his mercy. And that is a pretty good description of my theological beliefs up to this point. Because, you know, you can pray and you can ask God for healing. And there, there can be a, a ton of reasons why he doesn't do it. Sometimes he's looking for persistent faith, like the faith of these four men carrying the paralytic. But sometimes he's got another plan. And the difficulty in my, that I've found in my theological background is uh, I've never had any problems believing that God could fix someone. My problem was always whether I felt like God wanted to. Because if you don't, if Jesus doesn't have the will, the power is not really that useful. <laughs> and probably just so that you know where I've come to now is I, I think this is the trajectory that God is on. The, tra the trajectory is a trajectory of healing. That's what it is. Now we may live in the now and the not yet. We may live in a place where God's kingdom is advancing through healing but you know what it's not going to be a complete and full thing in my view until he comes back and his kingdom is all pervasive and is he moving in that direction yes he is does he want to move in that direction yes he does is he a begrudging healer no he's not he just has a timetable and so i think we ought to come to him knowing that his heart is to bring healing not just to our spiritual condition. We need to come to him believing that he wants to bring healing to our physical condition. 
It's interesting when you look at a uh, couple of scriptures in in, uh, Matthew and also in Acts about Jesus. Notice what it actually says in Matthew 4, 23 to 24. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Now, just note something there. It uses the word healing as a summary to dealing with demons. Now, I'm just pointing that out just to show you that's the trajectory that Jesus is on. He's about his kingdom extending and it actually bringing healing to people. Notice this in Acts 10 verse 38. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. You see, I don't think Jesus is as interested in this power face-off with the devil as he is in bringing healing to people. And it's really interesting when you look through the Gospels and you look at the examples where Jesus deals with evil spirits, most of the time the people dealing with evil spirits have got a physical affliction that Jesus actually brings some healing. It's like he cast out the demon and the person was healed instantly. That's kind of how it works. So if, well, I wonder, just as a final challenge to you, why don't you, what, what is one more reason why healing doesn't happen? Well, there's lots of them. But I just want to throw this one at you. See, James 1, uh, you can read it later. You know what James 1 says? It says, you do not have because you do not ask now you know what he's saying he's really saying you might miss out because you don't ask for it yeah it might be that God wants to get up to something else and you know what he's the only completely free being in the universe and he can make the call and we trust him because he's good and powerful to do what's right but you know what it may well be that you may have missed out because you didn't ask. The first time that this ever happened in, uh, in my life, I'm not going to go into the details of the situation. Um, I remember there was a particular physical situation going on with someone that I loved. And I remember sitting next to their uh, hospital bed before the operation. And... Um, Probably for the first time, I asked for everything in my life. Asked for it all. Just so I'd give me the kitchen sink, everything. Prior to that, it was always the prayer of, uh, God, I just trust you to do whatever you want to do. That time was, I'm coming to you, and there's a situation here, and I really, really want you just to totally restore everything that's going on here person went into theatre, the doctors didn't find anything wrong and everything was right, a week later everything was right now am I promising that that's going to happen every time? no, because it doesn't does it happen sometimes? yes it does, could you miss out on something because you didn't ask for it? yes couldn't you? I mean God acts in response to prayer
And James chapter 5 is very clear that if someone's sick or suffering, you should call the elders. The elders are the leaders in the church, according to the New Testament. The elders in this church are Diff and Nathan and I, and we're probably going to start calling ourselves elders. We were never really formally free to call ourselves elders, but that's the role that we play in the church. If you're sick, call us over. And we'll pray for your healing. Have I done it before? Yes, I've done it before as an elder. Not here. No one's actually, in three years, no one at the project's ever asked the elders to come and pray for their healing, I don't think, as far as I can remember. So why don't you do it? Now, there's some debate there about what the oil thing is and, you know, oil was used for medicinal purposes and you don't have to pour the... I don't know. Like, if we come over, we'll probably stick a bit of oil on your head and pray for you. Because let's just cover it and let's ask Jesus for everything. Okay? And if he wants to do something else, that's okay. But I just know in the interactions that I've had as an elder praying for people that God does amazing things. There was one lady in particular that had quite an acute psychiatric condition who actually, we found out just recently, marks the change for her right back to when the elders of the church actually anointed her with oil and prayed for her healing. Now, was it an instantaneous thing? No, it wasn't. Not for her. It took many, many years of progression but she's in a completely different place to what she was back then. And she says it all started to change when the elders prayed for her. So somehow God seems pleased to do some sweet work through church leadership. And it's not because we're powerful or we're anything special. But he's just put us in this place and maybe we'll come and we'll pray. And let's see what he might do. And we're not going to be shattered out of this world that he didn't heal someone. We're not going to say he's a bad person and we can't trust him. We're going to actively trust him. And we'll say, God, we're just going to ask, ask you for everything for this particular person. So I just wanted to say to everyone, avail yourself of that. That's one of our roles as the leaders in this church here is to come and pray for people who are sick. And we'd love to do that. Now, if you might have to, you know, if there's 20 people who want it, we might have to sort out some kind of, well, West Delhi kind of, tag system where take a number and we'll get to you but see this is what Jesus is about he's about bringing holistic healing and this is where I want to finish today you see he doesn't just deal with the physical he deals with the deepest thing first but he's actually interested in a holistic healing now one day if he doesn't come back before we all die death's going to get us and sickness will get us. But immediately at that point, you know what happens? Is complete restoration. You, you finally become the person that you always probably hoped that you might be, but never dared to dream too much because you live in a fallen world. Jesus is interested in everything. I want to finish by um, reading a quote out of uh, C.S. Lewis's work the voyage of the dawn treader there's a boy in the voyage of the dawn treader called eustace everyone hates him and he hates everybody he's selfish and he's mean and nobody can get along with him but he finds himself magically on the dawn treader taking a great voyage at one point this boat pulls into an island and eustace wanders off and finds a cave the cave proves to be filled with diamonds and rubies and gold he thinks i'm rich and immediately, because he is who he is, he thinks that now he'll be able to pay everybody back. 
Anybody who has laughed at him, stepped on him, slighted him, will now get their comeuppance. Eustace falls asleep on the pile of treasure, which he doesn't yet know is the hoard of a dragon. And because he falls asleep with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, when he wakes up, he becomes a dragon. This is Eustace. Big, terrible, and ugly. Soon he realises there's no way out. He can't go on the boat. He's going to be left on the island alone. He's going to be horrible all of his life. He falls into despair. One day the great lion Aslan shows up. Aslan's a, a picture of Jesus. And he leads him to a clear pool of water and tells him to undress and jump in. And suddenly Eustace realises that undress means take off the dragon skin. He begins to gnaw and claw at the scales and, as he real, and he realises that he can shed his skin. Working at it, he finally peels off his skin. But to his dismay, he finds that underneath he's got another dragon skin. He tries a second time and a third time to no avail. The same thing still happens each time. In the end, the lion says, you're going to have to let me go deeper. This is how Eustace tells the story I was afraid of his claws I can tell you but I was pretty nearly desperate now the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart and when he began pulling the skin off it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt well he peeled the beastly stuff right off just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times only they hadn't hurt you notice the similarity here. This is what we do, isn't it? We try to get the dragon beastly stuff off and we can't. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. Then he caught hold of me and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. Then I saw I'd turned into a boy again. The deepest thing that you want is not deep enough. Jesus wants to go deeper. You can't save yourself. You can't heal yourself. Whatever it is in your mind that you think, if I just had that, I'd be okay, you wouldn't be okay. The only way that you can be okay is to let Jesus cut deep and change you. Will it hurt? Yeah, it does. But it'll be a good kind of hurt. 